0: So now we're continuing this morning in the series in the book of Judges, and we come to the story of Jephthah. Jephthah's story goes from chapter 10 to 12, we will be reading Judges 11, verses 1 to 11. It can be found on page 211 in your pew Bible. That is Judges chapter 11, verses 111 on page 211. Hear now the eternal living word of God. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. So this morning we are coming to this story of Jephthah, one of the major judges in the book of Judges. And in this story we will see the power of God's grace in the face of human brokenness because we are broken. Human beings are totally depraved. That's nowhere clearer than in the book of Judges. That doesn't mean we're as sinful as we could possibly be. Even those who don't know God through faith in Jesus Christ don't commit every possible sin they could. Our total depravity means that sin affects every part of us. Our wills, our intellects, our emotions. Every part of us is tainted by sin. But God's grace not only overcomes all of this, but God in his infinite wisdom uses us. He uses broken people in need of his grace. Author Vance Havner once wrote, God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, broken bread to give strength. It is the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It is Peter weeping bitterly who returns to greater power than ever. God often uses broken things, broken people, to bring about his grace. And this morning we'll see three elements of God's grace in the story of Jephthah. The first is that God's grace is greater than our sin. Second, God's grace comes to those who are broken. And third, God's grace can come to Through the broken as a tool. So following the story of Abimelech, who was the last major judge, then there was two minor judges, Tola and Jair, that judged Israel. So then, in chapter 10, verse 6, after Jair, the last minor judge, died, we see that the people of Israel once again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so not only is pretty predictable what they're going to do at this point, And they repeatedly reject the Lord, but things are getting worse. When you look at the list of the pagan gods they are serving now, it's getting longer. In verse 6, it says they served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So they're serving a long list of pagan gods now, but not serving the Lord. The people are spiraling further and further away from God. The magnitude of their sin is becoming more prevalent. And so once again, the anger of the Lord is kindled against them. And he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites as judgment for their sins. And the people of Israel were crushed by them. It says they oppressed the people specifically of Gilead for 18 years. Now, this can be a little bit confusing. Because Gilead is a location. It's a a land located near the Jordan River. But it's also a family in Israel. At at one point, Gilead is actually enlisted among the tribes of Israel. And there's an actual man named Gilead who had a family who lived there and ruled this area. So the people of Israel once again cry out to the Lord. They said, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and we have served the Baals. And the Lord replied to them, and he lists a bunch of times that he has saved them. He said, did I not save you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites? All these people oppressed you. You cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. But you still, after all that, you turned away from me, and you served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more, he says this time. Go cry out to the other gods that you have Chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. But ultimately, God's grace overcomes the sins of his people. We see in verse seven, 15, starting in verse 15, it says, And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery. Of Israel, it's is the first element of God's grace we see this morning. God's grace is greater than our sin. Although the people of Israel continuously rebel against God, they turn from him, they sinfully worship idols with increasing magnitude, God loves his people. It says he's impatient over their misery, over their suffering. So although we are totally depraved, we're thoroughly sinful, God's grace is greater than our sin. The history of the people of Israel shows us the pervasiveness of sin in the hearts of humanity. And that may be nowhere more clear, as I said, in the book of Judges. When we read through the book of Judges, it's almost unbelievable. But it's true. Humanity is so sinful. But God is gracious and loving to his people. He continuously extends grace to them, no matter how far they've gone. God loves us in our brokenness. God restores us from our brokenness. We can't go too far. If you are one of God's people, if he has chosen you, he will continue to love you and make things right. No matter how much our sinful nature, we try to make things wrong. This doesn't mean that we can take his grace for granted, which seems to be the case of Israel in the book of Judges. But it does mean that we can know how much he loves us. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And through the death of Jesus Christ, we're redeemed from the curse of our sin. We're reconciled to God while we're, bro- while we're broken. And he is bringing about us righteousness and his holiness in us. And in our moments of weakness, our moments of sin, we can feel like we've gone too far. But God's grace is greater than our sin. And through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, we can overcome sin in our lives. We are continually conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. But in Judges at this point, God doesn't raise up a judge for Israel. But they still have a situation on their hands. So they start to look for a leader themselves to get them out of this mess. The Ammonites now have gathered an army and they've encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel come together and they form a camp as well. But the people of Gilead start to ask, who will lead them in this fight against the Ammonites? They want a leader to save them as has happened in the past. Then in chapter 11, we're introduced to a man from Gilead named Jephthah. We're told he's a mighty warrior and also that he's the son of a prostitute. Then we're given this brief backstory in the first three verses of chapter 11. There's other men from Gilead who were sons of Gilead. And they made sure Jephthah Jephthah knew his place. They drove him out of Gilead. They said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled to a place called Tob, and he lived there in exile from Gilead. He was rejected by his family and the people of Gilead. And it says worthless fellows gathered around Jephthah, and they went out with him. And so now, fast forward back to the present time, when the Ammonites are going to war with Israel, the elders of Gilead go looking for Jephthah. And they find him and say, come be our leader so we can fight against the Ammonites. And Jephthah is a little confused, understandably so. He says, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders respond, we came to you because we want you to be our leader and lead us in the fight against the Ammonites. And so Jephthah says, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Then the elders replied, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So then Jephthah goes back with them to Gilead, and they make him their leader. And Jephthah spoke all of his words before the Lord, it says. So Jephthah seems to have some understanding of a reliance on the Lord. He seems to understand the sovereignty of God. He says, if the Lord hands the Ammonites over to me. He refers to him as Yahweh, his covenantal name. And he says all of his words to the people of Gilead before the Lord. But the canonization of the people of Israel is evident here. Jephthah's time, living in Tob, uh, running around with a worthless gang of ruffians, has an influence on him. We'll see that he's been affected by the pagan culture around him. So now, though, Jephthah does begin his leadership with some diplomacy with the king of the Ammonites, instead of immediately going to war. He sends messengers to this king and asks him, Why do you, what do you have against me that you have come to, to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites sent messengers in response, because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now therefore, restore it peaceably. But then Jephthah responds quite knowledgeably. He says, that's not quite how it happened. Then he gives this little historical correction. He says, we never took your land. When Israel came up from Egypt, they went through the wilderness, and they asked the kings of Edom and the kings of Moab to go through their lands, but they both refused. And so Israel went around the lands of Edom and Moab, and they camped just outside Moab. Then Israel asked the king of the Amorites, not to be confused with the Ammonites, this is different people, and he asked them for permission to go through the land. And he didn't trust them, so the king of the Amorites gathered an army to fight them. So then Jephthah said, the Lord, the God of Israel, gave the Amorites, a different people altogether, into the hand of Israel. So Israel completely defeated the Amorites and took their land, not the Ammonites, not the guy who's claiming that he did this. So then in verse 23, it says, so then the Lord, this is Jephthah still speaking to the king of the Ammonites. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives to you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. He's saying that Israel's not taking the land of the Ammonites. And also that the land Israel has was a divine gift from Yahweh, their God. He's telling him, be content with what your God gives you. Uh, this land is ours from God. We're not giving it up. And then he follows with a series of questions about Balak, the former Moabite king. And so there seems to have been a combination. The Ammonites have taken over the Moabites, so they're they're kind of together. When he mentions the king of Moab, it's referring to the Ammonites as well. And, And what he says is basically that Balak, the former king, never fought against us. He never claimed that this is his land. For 300 years, no Ammonite king, no Moabite king tried to fight us or claim that this was their lands. So why are you claiming it now? This is why your claim is rejected and we're staying here. And so then the conclusion of Jephthah's statement is in verse 27. He said, I therefore have not sinned against you and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. And so the king of the Ammonites really has no possible response to this. It simply just says he didn't listen. He doesn't really care if he has a right to the land or not. He wants it, so he's going to go to war for it. So then we read that the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he went from Gilead to the land of the Ammonites. So God does get involved. We haven't heard from Yahweh this whole time. God bless you. But he remains silent. But... He does send his spirit to Jephthah. God is going to deliver his people through Jephthah. The rebellious, pagan, worshipping people will get the salvation they need, and it's only by God's grace. They're not being saved because they were smart enough and they went and found Jephthah. Jephthah's negotiating isn't going to do it. They're only saved by the grace of God. But God's grace doesn't come to them because they're good enough. And this is our second element of God's grace this morning. God's grace comes to those who are broken. It's common misbelief, a misunderstanding about God that I need to get my act together before I can come to God for his grace. That I need to first get rid of my sin and then God will give me grace so I can get right with God. But that's not how the grace of God works. God's grace comes to someone first. First. He meets us where we are in our brokenness. He brings about the repentance. There's not a sinner in this world that's too far from God's grace. You don't need to clean up your act first before he accepts you. He will change your heart. God's grace comes to the broken. The people of Israel rejected God. They were pretty much full pagan-worshipping Canaanites. They repeatedly turned away from him, and their sin was spiraling out of control. But God's grace is greater than our sin. His grace comes to broken people. If you're here this morning and you feel distant from God, disconnected from him, know that his grace is for you. Know that you don't have to get your act together first. God loves you. His grace not only saves you, his grace heals us. His, the grace of God restores us from our brokenness. In Mark chapter 2, when the Pharisees were complaining that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus responded by saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I, have, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is a reminder for all of us, even those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, that God's grace saves us not because we're good enough. God's grace saves us because he, is good enough. God's grace comes to the broken. Those who have received God's grace and mercy, we need to remember this. We're not better than anyone. We're we're just as broken as our neighbor, but God has extended mercy and grace to us and he's changed us. He's the one who brings about any goodness in us. We are saved by the grace of God alone through faith in his son alone. And the grace of God's not limited just to our salvation. God's grace goes beyond saving us. God continues to give us His grace, bringing about His love in us. So that God's grace is what continually conforms us through the work of the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus Christ, all by the grace of God. So now, when Jephthah is about to go to battle, he makes a vow to the Lord. Now, this is one of the more difficult and puzzling passages in the book of Judges. So he says, starting in verse 30, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So then after this vow, Jephthah then goes to battle with the Ammonites, and the Lord does give them into his hand. He defeats the Ammonites. And so now, Jephthah, when he returns home victoriously, it says, And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And so now, Jephthah had vowed to make a burnt offering of whatever had come out of his door, and it's his daughter. Now, Jephthah does not forget his vow. And so he's crushed when his daughter walks through the door. Maybe he was expecting a servant, an animal, we're not sure. But he says, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And so Jephthah's daughter agrees. She says, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. And so first she asks to have two months to mourn that she was a virgin, because it was a great tragedy for Hebrew women to die childless. But at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, and he did as he vowed. And so there are some questions that arise here. First of all, why did Jephthah even make this bizarre vow? Jephthah was surrounded by paganism, and the culture around him seemed to have influenced him. Child sacrifice was actually an important part of worship to some of the pagan gods but it was strictly forbidden by the Lord. Yahweh, speaking of the way that pagans serve their God, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 31, he said, wrote, says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. But Jephthah seems to have been desensitized to the violent cruelty of paganism. He's more influenced by the culture around him than by the word of God. But God delivered his people through Jephthah. And this is our third element of God's grace this morning. God's grace can come through the broken. One commentator wrote that God can write straight with a crooked pencil. God uses broken people to minister to his people. God's sanctifying and his sustaining grace comes through humans. Now, we have been called by God, changed by God. We're being conformed into the image of Christ. But none of us are grace graduates. We all still need the grace of God. And God uses people who still need his grace to bring grace to others. The whole ministry of the church is done by God working through broken people. God not only works in us to restore us into his image, he works in us to restore others into his image. God brings his word to the church through preachers that are still in need of his grace. He, he, he's, we are all called by God and changed by God, but, and he's actively restoring us, but he uses us while we're still sinners, while we're still in the process of restoration. God brings healing and comfort through people who struggle with pain and sin themselves. God uses us to do his work. In his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Paul Tripp wrote, God has called all of his people to be instruments of change in his redemptive hands. God uses us, broken people who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, as tools to bring about his work in others. And so for Jephthah, after defeating the Ammonites and sacrificing his daughters, there's still more to this story. The men of Ephraim call to arms and they approach Jephthah. And once again, they're upset that they weren't called to fight. This is the same thing they did to Gideon. Ephraim is kind of a prima donna of the tribes of Israel. But this time, they actually threaten to burn Jephthah's house with fire. Now Gideon was able to talk them out of it by flattering them. Jephthah does nothing of the sort. He says, I called on you for help, but you didn't help me. So I had to go and risk my life myself and fight the Ammonites. Why are you now coming to fight me? So then he gathered men of Gilead to fight them. Not quite the same reaction as Gideon. And so the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim, and they captured the fords of the Jordan. And the fords are just the shallow places of a river where you can cross. And so any time an Eph- Ephraimite would try to cross the river, they would say to them, say Shibboleth. And the people from Ephraim couldn't pronounce it correctly. It would be like asking people from northeast Philly to say water. They, they would say, Sibboleth. Right, and so anytime someone would say Sibboleth, they killed them right there. And they ended by killing forty-two thousand Ephraimites. And again, the story of Abimelech, or similar to the story of Abimelech, there's an inner conflict within Israel here. This battle with all these people dying is between God's people. And so then it says Jephthah judged Israel six years, and then it mentions that he died. But it doesn't mention that the land had rest. There actually will not be rest in the land for the rest of the book of Judges. And then after Jephthah, there were three minor judges that are mentioned. Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. And it doesn't mention whether God raised any of those judges up or any of the other usual parts of the cycle. It just says that these three men judge Israel and gives a few details about their families. Jephthah is a complicated judge. He, he's one that clearly recognizes God at times. In Hebrews 11, where actually Jephthah is commended as a man of faith. But at other times, he seems to want to use God and to manipulate God. But just like the people did with Yahweh himself, the people rejected Jephthah. Then only to call on him when they needed him, when they were in grave distress. They only wanted the benefits that both Jephthah and Yahweh could provide for them. But in the story of Jephthah, we once again see God's faithfulness. He doesn't even call Jephthah himself, but he still works, empowers him by his spirit. He's the one that gives him victory over the Ammonites and frees his people from oppression. And just like Jephthah, we have a savior who was rejected, by his people God's grace ultimately comes through a man who was not broken by sin, but a perfectly righteous man, Jesus Christ. He was, as the prophet Isaiah announced, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And Jesus died the sacrificial death on the cross in our place. So that broken sinners like us can receive the grace of God. Jesus lived the perfectly righteous life that we could never live. And he died the death that we deserve. So that our brokenness may be restored. Not only are we seen in the eyes of God with the righteousness of Christ, but God is working within us to bring about his righteousness, to bring about his glory in us. The magnitude of God's grace is more than we can even imagine. He sacrificed his only son, Jesus Christ, that we may be forgiven, that we may be reconciled to God, that we may be restored from our brokenness. So let us all continue to be tools in the hands of our Redeemer. May we continue to do God's work in the lives of those around us. May God not only restore us, but may He he use us to restore those around us. May we show the love, peace, kindness of Jesus Christ to our friends, our families, our neighbors, our co-workers, that God's restoring work may be done in us and through us, His people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God of grace and mercy, your power and grace overcomes our brokenness. Continue to restore us from depraved sinners into the glorious image of your Son. We want to glorify you by becoming what we are created to be. Glorify yourself by creating our hearts anew that we may glorify you in our newness of life. We can't renew ourselves without your Spirit. It's through the power of Jesus Christ that our renewal happens. Use us as tools in your hands to restore those around us. May we live lives with your love and peace, mercy and grace. That although we are not fully restored, May we be avenues of grace in this world. May we live lives worthy of the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.